Okay, if you want to turn with me to James chapter 4, I'm going to start at verse 13 um, and read to the end of the chapter. Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy, and sell, and get gain. Whereas ye know that not what whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is in is your life, it is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanishes away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or do that. But now ye rejoice in your boasting, all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You can be seated. One of the most mesmerizing stories of all time is the story of the Titanic. The Titanic is a symbol of great human ambition, a story about overconfidence. The name itself, Titanic, speaks of the expectation and the anticipation that centered on that ship as it was being constructed and designed. The size of the ship on its maiden voyage, the first time it set out to sail, it was the largest ship on the water at that time. Over 2,400 passengers and crew on that very first trip. There was no expense that was spared, either in the design or in the technology, in the decor of the inside and outside of the ship was ornate and spectacular and amazing in its, in, in its design. The ship was equipped with bars and restaurants, swimming pools, bands, orchestras, pretty much anything that was considered possible, pretty much anything that was considered possible in terms of technology for that time was part of the, the Titanic. Besides that, the Titanic was touted as the safest ship on the water, the safest ship ever built. The technology was such that she carried only 20 lifeboats because they said that it was unsinkable. And the lifeboats were sort of a token. It was mostly used, they thought, to rescue other ships that were in need of rescuing. Besides that, the Titanic was so large that most of the bays, most of the decks in the world could not actually have the Titanic come up to the deck in the port because it was too large. And so they would use lifeboats to ferry the passengers from the deck to the Titanic. Additionally, they thought that the lifeboats only took up unnecessary deck space. And we know that today, the Titanic lies at the bottom of the ocean after sinking on its first and only voyage. Early on the morning of April 15, 1912, the ship hit an iceberg. 
that ripped approximately 300 feet gash in the side of the hull. And in less than two hours, the gigantic ship was underwater. Over 1,500 people died in that tragedy. And the ones that were saved by the lifeboats, well, there was lots of chaos when they realized the ship was actually sinking. There had never been any kind of drills, any kind of training in terms of using the lifeboats. And so as a result of that, there was lots of chaos that um, surrounded that event of filling the lifeboats. And as the lifeboats left the Titanic, most of the lifeboats were only like half full. <clears throat> but the Titanic was not only destroyed by an iceberg. It was more than that. It was destroyed by a state of mind. It was destroyed by a way of thinking. An unseen force, an uncalculated force was at work that led to the most tragic and the most famous tragedy of that time. Arrogance, overconfidence. Somewhere along the line, Somewhere along the line, human ambition, a good thing, converted to human arrogance, a very bad thing. And those two are to this day a close step apart one from the other. A very small and close step. And the two can cross at unexpected times in our lives. The two can cross at times that are practically unperceivable by us at the moment. Maybe noticed by others, but many times unperceived by us. Our lesson today in James chapter 4 talks about this thing. It's, it's a warning. A warning about planning and making our schedules and going about carrying out those plans and schedules and doing it without God. putting our schedules and our plans together and carrying them out because this seems right or this fits with what I need to do with work right now or this, this is the next thing and so I'm going to pursue it. My stage of life or my family or all of those things can come into the picture. And as we do that, we leave God out of the picture. Leave God out of the equation. Our plans and God's will. <clears throat> it's a very practical issue for me. 
and a practical issue for probably all of us. And we've seen how the book of James sort of goes right down through, cuts through the fluff, and is very practical and convicting. It has been for me, at least as I study it. It's a busy world that we live in, right? We have busy schedules, and we're involved in a lot of things. And it seems like those commitments and some of those, the things that go with those commitments actually seem to require more of our time, not less. And the lives of our children, especially at the stage of life that we're in, call us into different and more directions. The opportunities that we live in the world today are so numerous and seem, seemingly become even more numerous. And some of those commitments can, can pull us further and further away from things that are actually more important. The readers of this book have already been reproved for demonstrating a spirit of independence from God. Independence from God. In the beginning of this chapter, actually it was our last sermon, we noticed that many times conflicts and quarrels and come up in our lives because we depart from God's rule in our lives, especially when it comes to relationships and those kinds of things. We tend to overvalue what is necessary or overvalue, put a higher premium on what is important to, to me or to us. And in the process, we actually uh, move away from, from God. And the instruction in the beginning of chapter 4 is very applicable for our subject today as well. In James, the early part of James 4, we are to counteract that spirit of independence by drawing near to God, drawing nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to us, it says. Cleanse your hands, it says in verse 8, ye sinners, purify your hearts. Verse 10, humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up. <clears throat> the rest of the book of James comes in small little portions and gives us teaching on areas in which we need to be or demonstrate humility. Today, we have the teaching of humility in relation to our plans, our planning. And how we conduct our lives in terms of how we manage our time. How we go about managing our time. And specifically, the thought process. The thinking pattern of that aspect of our lives. <clears throat> the thesis of the book of James is that if we truly have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it is going to affect all areas of our lives, not just some. It's going to affect, it's going to change what I say. And it's going to change what I do. It's going to change how I see the world in all aspects of life. There's not a dualism that we can have in our lives as Christians. Truly born-again believers have their hearts changed, and it affects all areas of their lives. We are not one person 
on one day of the week, another person another day of the week, or another kind of person, depending who's around us, and another, yet another person, depending. We're not dualistic in that way. James is calling on believers of that time and readers of all time, us today, to, to depart from that way of thinking, dualism. The rest of the book now turns, like I said, in kind of small sections, calls us to areas of humility and right thinking and, and how we view our wealth and how we view suffering and how we pray. And we'll look, about, we'll look at those in that order when we come to them. <clears throat> All of these things in James chapter 4 and 5 become fundamentally different. The closer I get to Christ, the further behind I leave the things that come naturally to me, the things that come from my flesh. The more I draw an eye to God, the further away I get from the things that I'm pulled to naturally in the flesh. And I think one of the primary things that we feel in the flesh is the desire to rule our own lives, the desire to be self-sovereign. And if we're not really careful, when it comes to planning, when it comes to scheduling, we can put ourselves on the throne of our lives. We put ourselves in the rule of our own lives to be self-sovereign, to have myself at the center of my life instead of having Jesus at the center. We can see the idolatry of that as we talk about it, right? James actually sums it up earlier in the book of, of chapter 4, James 4 verse 4, and calls it adultery, a form of adultery, where we align ourselves with things that come naturally to us, we align ourselves with things that our flesh naturally desires and follows. <clears throat> but to actually carry that out is something much more difficult. The question for me and for all of us is simply this. Is God at the center of your plans? Have you consulted Him? Or are you just doing what you're doing? Whatever that may be, are you, are you just doing it because you want to carry it out? It's something that you want to do for your life? Are you doing it just because it fits your will? Instead, the challenge of this portion of Scripture is for us to stop and ask God, God, is this your will? Is this what you want me to do? And we're going to look at ways and how the, the passage talks about that. I want to say at the beginning here, this passage here is not anti-business. It is not anti-profit making. It is not anti-making plans and goals. I don't see anything like that at all. The issue is, do I, in the process of doing these things, do I include God? That's the question. 
That's the bigger question. It's not so much doing these things as what is left out while we're doing them. The text today tells us, and the Bible warns us, that there are consequences to planning our lives, to planning our schedules apart from God. And this text, again, just couldn't be more clear on how we do that, how we go about that. Planning our lives and schedules apart from God's will, without Him being the center of all that we do. The text here kind of gives us three consequences for planning our lives. Three consequences for planning our lives without Christ at the center. The first thing I see here is in verse 13 and 14. And that is, it leaves us unprepared. It leaves us unprepared. Look at verse 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now, the problem here is not in the strategizing. The person that's doing this is not necessarily condemned in the strategizing or in the making of goals or the planning. Both, the Bible tells us, are actually quite important. In other places of Scripture, we have the teaching that we should plan. And it's important for us to make goals and to project our lives and our schedules. This is actually a pretty decent business model that we see right here in front of us. For instance, look, look, at, look at the wording. He says, today or tomorrow. The person making the plans is actually building a little bit of flexibility in it. There's a little bit of flexibility included. And he goes on to say, we will go into such and such a city. The place is chosen. The plan is, is continuing to the next thing, the next step. And the plan continues, and he says, we're going to spend a year there. So the period of time is calculated, and we're going to buy and sell and make a profit. <clears throat> the activity while spending time in this city is anticipated. What's the problem with all of that, you ask? Well, nothing. Nothing in and of itself. The problem is not in what's included here, it's what's left out. The problem is what is left out. You notice any mention of God at all in this plan? I don't. There's no mention at all of God. There's nothing, no thought of the Lord whatsoever. None. And James goes on in verse 14 and tells us that this is this plan and how the process, how it's processed and how it's carried out is a matter of foolishness. Verse 14, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. The truth is that none of us, none of us really knows what the future holds. We barely can see ahead even a couple of minutes, much less a week or a month or a year with any kind of accuracy. And it's foolish to make our plans and our goals without God at the center. Life is simply too short to do that. And as a believer, I should never, I should never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ not only created me to be to have him be Lord of my life, but God actually desires that place in our lives. He calls us for that reason, 
to be Lord, to be at the center of everything that we do. And when I do that, when I make God the center of my life, whatever comes out of my plans, whether it's success or failure, and by the way, who of us can actually say what is success or failure when God is at the center of our lives? Who of us decides that something or some venture or some activity that we're doing is successful? Or conversely, if it's a failure. If our life is at the center, if God is at the center of our lives, then what comes out of our lives is for Him, for His glory. He gets the credit. That's pretty important, right? Life is fragile, he says in verse 14. All of us, all of us probably at some point or another in our lives have stood outside on a very cold, damp morning. And we've exhaled very deeply. And you know what happens when you're outside in a cold day and you blow. You have a steam mist that extends out depending on the strength of our lungs. Maybe a foot or two. A vapor, a mist. The 98.5 degree temperature of the air in our lungs becomes a mist in the colder air that we exhale into. The oxygen in our lung comes out in little particles and it appears visible in the form of very small particles that creates a little bit of mist or vapor. And that's the word picture that James here uses to describe our lives. And all of us can easily think of how impractical, how impossible it is for us to grab that mist. We certainly can't take it and put it back in. We can create another mist, perhaps, but we can never have that one back. The mist is out there, and it's gone, just like that. And life is like that. Life is like that. There's at least 18 times in the book of, in the Old Testament, where the Bible makes a point of this very thing. Numerous times in the book of Job and the book of Psalms, I've just included the ones in those two books alone that I could find. In Job 7, verse 6, it calls life like a weaver's shuttle. Job 7, verse 7, life is described as a breath. Job 7, verse 9, life is described as a cloud. Job 8, verse 9, a shadow. Job 9, verse 25 and 26, life is described as a runner or an eagle that swoops down on its prey. Job 14, Verses 1 and 2, life is described as a fading flower, and again, as a shadow. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, describe life as a handbreadth, just, just about so wide. And again, as a vapor. Psalm 102, verse 3, says that life is like smoke. Psalm 102, verse 11, calls life like grass. Psalm 103, verse 15 and 16, describes life like grass and like a wind. It happens pretty quickly. Life is fragile and brief. 
And the poet, the poet captures some of these ideas with these words when he writes, when as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I grew, time flew. Soon I shall find in passing on, time gone. And that's just how it is. That's just how it is. In Luke 12, we have the story of a wealthy farmer whose ultimate goal was to live leisurely, to retire and do as little work as possible, to revel in his success, what he thought was success. And in that parable, the man is called a fool by Jesus, or God. Again, not because that he was planning for the future. Not so much that he was making provisions for the future, as much as the man is judged because he thought he was in total control of it. Life is fragile. Life is brief. And it can go away just like that. I had to think about it this week. All of us are just one event away from death. Just one incident. Every one of us. It can be an accident. It can be a disease, a sickness. It can be a natural catastrophe of some kind. Besides that, all of us are getting older and weaker, and we're subject to our bodies not functioning as they are designed to. Just one event, just one incident away from eternity. Every one of us. Proverbs 27, verse 1 says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. The second consequence that I see here is in verse 16. And that is not having Christ at the center of our lives creates overconfidence. Verse 16 says, but now ye rejoice in your boastings. And he goes on to say, all such rejoicing is evil. The word boasting is not a complicated word at all. It means that when you are doing life and when you are structuring your plans, when you're structuring your life, the word implies clearly that you, that you are doing this. When you are boasting, when you are rejoicing in that boasting, you think of yourself as something special. You think of your plans as something special. It's something that comes from you. The famous lines that we've already heard are, we are the masters of our fate. We tend to think that very little can happen outside of our control. And when we approach life that way, we are boasting, the Bible says. Notice that in the King James Version... In verse 16, the word boasting is in the plural. And I think that simply implies that it's something that can become habitual. It becomes normal or routine for us. 
It's entirely possible for this kind of thinking to become routine. And like I said earlier, very subtle. And we do it routinely, habitually. It becomes a way of life for us. We tend to think that we don't really need others because I am in control of my life. I am in control of what comes out of my life. And there are few things. When you stop and think about it, there are few things that are as arrogant as that thought process. There, it really is. If we think that we can go through life without the help, without the aid of others, without the interaction of people around us, The third consequence is in verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Going about our plans and our lives without God at the center leads to missing God's plan. It leads to missing God's best for our lives. The sin of omission it simply implies that it's possible to omit, to leave something out, to not, not do it. The example here is that the person knows that there is something that God is calling him to. I know that God is calling me to do something, but I choose not to. The person that's described here knows that the Christian life is about discipleship, knows that the Christian life is about encouragement and relating to people around us, people that we are committed and have committed to, knows that we are to love and come alongside others. But in this particular situation, they are simply unwilling. They choose not to. Unwilling to do what they know they ought to do. And James calls that sin. The point is clear to me that many times when we think of sin, we think of something that we do. It's the guy that robbed the bank. That's sin. It's the guy that cheated, was unfaithful to his wife. That's sin. It's the person that lied and misled, cheated on his taxes. That's sin. But James makes a very clear point, and in keeping with the Sermon on the Mount as well, that there's something that goes ahead of that. That's something that our actions follow, and that is how we think. And that's actually the ultimate of what needs to change. James says that sin is not doing something that we were made to do or not doing something that we need to do. To leave something out that we know is important, something that we know God is asking us to do. Sometimes that is sin. The person in verse 17 is also procrastinating, as I see it, 
putting off for later. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28 talk about procrastination. Not putting off for later what is possible for us to do today. The time for obedience is today. The time for obedience is now. <clears throat> we can't count on tomorrow. In financial business terms, yesterday is like a canceled check. Tomorrow is like a promissory note. But today is cash. Today is cash. It's the only cash we have. And the problem is, when we know that there's something that God wants us to do, that God is calling us to do, Christian friends maybe are even confirming this to us. The scripture confirms it. But we say, I just, I'm just, I don't want to do it. Maybe later. And instead of doing what God wants us to do, we end up doing what we want to do. Do you see the problem with that? It's not so hard to see it when I'm here talking about it, is it? But I see that tendency in my life, and I'm guessing you're probably like that as well. The classic example of this is the prophet Jonah. God clearly called him to go to Nineveh to preach. But instead, he said, I just, I just can't. It's, it's too much. I, I'm, I'm just not going to do it, that's all. And so instead of going east, he went west. And he got on a ship and went even further west. And what's interesting is that God created a catastrophic event to bring Jonah back to where he ought to be. And you know, I've listened to testimonies, and I've probably even seen it in my own life. Where we're going, living our life, doing what we think is best for us, and doing what we, what we want to do, and simply carrying out our plans and schedules. And again, I've, I've heard testimonies where a series of events or something out of our control took place, and somehow or another God brought me back. And while there's something good and exciting about that, that process of being forced back or things being orchestrated by God to bring us back are often unnecessary in and of itself. And often there's other people that are involved and hurt and wounded as a result of that. And what people are saying is that, well, I just simply ask the question, does God need to do that? Does God need to do that? Should we be so stubborn that God needs to chase us all over the country? Should we be so stubborn that God needs to orchestrate some kind of natural or physical disaster or a series of incidents to pull us back? Why do we resist until something bad happens to us or to others? James just sort of says that the person who knows to do something, James just sort of says that the person who knows to do something and does not do it, 
The problem with that is kind of obvious. All three of these consequences, all three of these consequences come as a result of us wanting to do what we want to do. Of us trying to be at the center and at the focus of our lives. <clears throat> what is the proper response here? What is the proper response? First of all, we need to plan our life with God's will in mind. And that's, that's obvious here in verse 15. We need to plan our will. We need to plan our life with God's will in mind. It says in verse 15, For that ye ought to say, and that is in reference to the, the brevity and the f how fragile our life is, the brevity of it. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. That's how we need to go about our lives. Imagine with me if you're in the process of building a brand new house. And so you go to an architect, and the architect draws up a blueprint. And all of the beams and the pillars and the general design of the house is designed by the architect to create a house that is able to stand and is properly designed to function as a safe place for us to live. The architect makes sure that there's proper footings and that walls or pillars are at the right places. Everything needs to be braced and built in according to the code so that when, when the storms come, the house will stand. So that the house doesn't actually collapse and fall in on itself. <clears throat> but imagine. <clears throat> imagine if when it comes to actually building that house, you come along and say, you know, there's this little feature that we'd like to have in our house, and we think that'd be kind of cool, and we don't really like the fact that there's a pillar or a wall here, and so we're just not going to include that. We're just going to let that out. We're just going to, yeah, we're, we're just, we like, we, we just think it looks better this, this way. In, in construction and architectural terms, we can easily see the foolishness of that. But that's exactly how it is in our lives. In, our, in, our, in the physical world of architect, architecture and structure and building, that sort of thing, we don't say, I'm just going to not worry about the architect. Who cares about him? I'm just going to do what I want to do. And furthermore, what happens when the storms of life come? And they do come. They sure enough do. The illustration is a lot like our response to God, who, by the way, is the architect of our life. He is the architect of our life. Seeking God's will is like going to him and saying, what is it that you want? Seeking his opinion in whatever matter it is that comes along in our life. And when we get that counsel, we follow through and we actually do what the counsel is. We string those decisions together 
And it becomes a real faith-building thing for us, right? Think back in your own lives. When you make a series of wise choices, it becomes a real matter of faith for you. We string those decisions together, and we come up with a structure that's meaningful, a structure that actually stands. And so that brings up something that's really important. And I'm guessing that some of you are probably even asking in your minds, maybe especially if you're a youth, but not only youth answer, struggle with this question. And that is the question, how do I know what is God's will for my life? And I'm guessing that if we were to pass the microphone around up and down the benches, you would all say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm eager to know what God's will is for my life. How can you know if something is from God or just your own imagination? There are times when we feel that there's something on our hearts and we feel that something, it it seems normal to go in a certain way. And we maybe even sense that, that God might be asking us to do that. But the caution or the hesitation or the, the God consciousness in us kind of helps us to step back and we say, well, is it just my own desire? Is this something that I'm just doing on my own? It's, it, those are legitimate questions. One of the ways that I have already thought about this, and it helps me at least somewhat in some of those questions, is that sometimes there is a difference between a good thing and a God thing. And sometimes we have to discern what is the good thing and what is the God thing. A good thing... I suggest, comes and goes. But a God thing comes and stays. A God thing comes and stays. There's going to be multiple and repeated reminders to us. We're going to have confirmation in that thing, whatever it is. God creates a passion in our hearts for that. That's a God thing, something that comes and stays, something that doesn't just, it's not just some momentary passion that flash, like a flash in the pan, and then it's gone and fades with time. A God thought grips our hearts, and as time goes on, that, con- that desire continues and perhaps even becomes stronger. A God thing grows as time goes on, but a good thing, I suggest, kind of fades and becomes a a memory. I have just a few practical things for finding God's will. Points for finding God's will. And I looked in the New Testament and I found some verses that clearly talk about finding God's will in our lives. Things that we can do. I'm going to leave these with you. First of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. The first thing I'm going to give to you in order to find God's will in your life is you have to come to faith in Christ. If your faith and trust is not in Jesus Christ, you're, you're out of the water. It's, you're, you're not going to, f- to have a clear understanding or you're not going to be able to discern and find God's will for your life. If you're living a life that's centered around yourself and your faith and trust is not in Christ for your life and all areas of your life, you can forget it. 
You're, you're going to have a hard time finding God's will for your life. First and foremost, you need to know what it's like to walk with Jesus daily. You need to know what it means to be a child of God. And a child, I submit to you, has a relationship with his father. And in that way, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, in order to find God's will for your life, you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Bible tells us that we need to live differently from the world. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And the word sanctification there means that we are different in terms of our values, in terms of our morals, the things that we actually do, the things that we involve ourselves in, the things that we open up in our lives, the things that we engage in in whatever way. You know, Sometimes when we're driving and on a, a road trip or traveling in some way, we use the term that we're just going with the traffic. Well, in life, we never can just go with the traffic. We never can. It's actually a very dangerous thing to just drive with the traffic. The Bible indicates that there's a standard. There's a set of values that God has called us to do, to actually do, to live. And the Bible says that's his will. The third thing that I see in Scripture is that we need to have a thankful attitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We need to have a thankful attitude. When I realize that everything comes from God, I'm going to have a different way of thinking. When I think that things are coming from me, it distorts my focus. It causes to me to be critical. It causes me to be unthankful. It causes me to be cynical in my life. Habitually, I become like that. And conversely, when we have a thankful attitude, we realize that everything comes from God and, co and goes to God. We also habitually start to thank people and express appreciation not only to God but also to other people for their contribution in our lives. We're never demanding. We're never complaining. We're never criticizing. We're never constantly comparing ourselves with others. We just have a spirit of gratefulness, thanksgiving, gratitude. And that attitude, brothers and sisters, changes everything. It changes everything. <clears throat> the fourth thing, the Bible tells us that we need to learn wisdom. How do we do that? Well, we learn it from the teaching of Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, 15 and 17, says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And it goes on, redeeming the time because the days are evil, which sort of ties in with the previous point. And it goes on to say in verse 17, Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Learn wisdom. I think one of the most practicals and the easiest ways that we can learn wisdom is to be a part of a church. 
when we have people around us that we're committed to and for and committed with, we have a broad spectrum of input into our lives. And it produces wisdom in our lives because we have a broad spectrum to compare it with. And when we start to be selective and only allow certain people and certain incidents to speak into our lives, it actually handicaps us. Or we only go surround ourselves with people that have the same spiritual gift as we do. Or we only surround ourselves with people that, are, that believe and feel exactly like we do. We actually become handicapped. Learning wisdom is, I think, being, can be part of a committed part of the body of church, of a church where there's solid biblical teaching and where you have people around you that are willing to speak truth into your life. I did not say willing to say what you want to hear, but willing to speak truth into your life. Accountability. The question that we need to ask, who is going to come alongside me? Who is going to walk alongside me? That's a question that all of us need to answer. One of the important questions of our lives. <clears throat> the fifth thing, the Bible tells us that we need to develop a visible testimony. In 1 Peter 2 verse 15, for so is the will of God that with well-doing, and some of the other translations talk about that visible testimony aspect, that something you do outwardly, physically, visibly, it's not just something that's in there and, we, and nobody can ever tell. I think that when we have a visible and we have that relationship with Christ, people can only be around us for a short period of time. And they're going to realize oh, they're, they're, there's something different about this person. There's something different about this man or woman. Their spirit connects or understands, feels our spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of us. And that means that we should no longer look like or talk like or do like everybody else around us. A visible testimony should govern our lives. <clears throat> so now I've talked about these five things. And I'm guessing that there might still be some of you that are saying, whoa, he hasn't told me who I'm supposed to get married to. Or he hasn't told me what career I should take in life. And he hasn't even told me what kind of church I should go to. He hasn't told me which, if I should buy the house that, that we as a family are thinking of buying. You know, Jesus actually anticipated these kinds of questions. In Matthew chapter 6, on the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples were there and a large group of others were there that day. And Jesus anticipated what they were thinking. And he said, take no thought for tomorrow. In Matthew chapter 6, I thought I had that on a screen here. I actually don't. Matthew chapter 6. Six times in this passage, or is it maybe seven times, we have the word thought that's used in the King James Version. And that word and the Greek means anxieties or worries. It has the idea of questions. Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat. Jesus anticipated this. And he, he realized that in the crowd there were people that were asking, what should I eat? 
What should I wear? Uh, where should I go? Those kinds of things. And I think the teaching, again, in Matthew 6, is not so much in not ever making plans. It does not teach us that we should never make plans or set goals for anything. It just means that that should not be the primary thing that we ever do. And these questions should not be the thing that dominates our life and our thought process. In fact, I think as we do these things, when we learn to do those things well, some of these thoughts and questions that we face in our lives actually become sort of much more automatic. And when we seek out godly wisdom, we can go to other people, committed Christians, brothers or sisters who mentor us, and we can say, what, what do you think about this? Is this something we should do? And we can continue to get green lights in some of these questions. And it becomes sort of normal and natural for us to take that next step. And I, that's, that's how I think of it. I'm sure there's, I'm not saying everything that there is to be said about that. But when we do these things first, these things first, and that becomes predominant and priority in our lives, some of these other things tend to take care of themselves. On April the 15th, 1912, every person that was in the Titanic as it sunk died. Over 1,500 people lost their lives. And there's a bit of a lesson as I see it. And that is that if it was or is arrogant if it was arrogant for them to think that their ship was unsinkable as it sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, how much more arrogant is it for us to think that the ship of our human will is unsinkable? No matter how ornate, no matter how luxurious the Titanic was, it was going down. And the challenge that I leave with you as I close is that if we are on the ship of our own self-will, it's going to sink. We're going down. It's going to lead to ruin and tragedy. It's going to lead to something worse than we already have. But if we instead trust in Jesus Christ and allow him to be Lord, to be at the center of our lives, it's going to lead us to safety and blessing. My prayer is that all of us would find that in our lives.